This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventures tell their best story from the road. I'm Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and this week we are going on a very special and unique bike ride. 10,000 miles across Mexico, the United States, and Canada, following one of the most phenomenal, mysterious, and downright amazing migrations in the animal kingdom. We are going bicycling with butterflies. Taking us on this adventure is Sarah Dykman. She's a naturalist, an outdoor educator, and a damn good writer. Her book of this adventure is called Bicycling with Butterflies. It's a great read and just an awesome idea for an adventure. I wish I'd had it first. I've linked to it in the show notes, episode page of the website, armchair-explorer.com, or just search it up wherever you get your books. You can also head to beyondabook.org or at beyondabook on Facebook, which is an organization she founded to foster lifelong learners, boundary pushers, explorers, and stewards, so you can connect directly with her there too. Finally, if this episode inspires you to find out more about the monarch butterfly migration, why it's under threat, and what you can do to help, head to monarchwatch.org. And monarchjointventure.org is another great resource too. So we're just about to get started, but first a quick shout out to a few new patrons of the show, Lachlan Skillback, Nina Sobel, John McCormick, Lyndall Lucas, and Rachel Geertzke. I hope I pronounced that right. You guys are absolute legends. And if you haven't already, jump on that Discord group chat. The link is on the Patreon website so we can hang out. I'd love to find out more about you and share some stories of our adventures together. Thank you so much for your support. It means the world to me because the sponsorship pays for my costs, but not my time. And it takes a lot of time to make these episodes, about 40 hours for each one. So if you are enjoying them, then please consider buying me a pint. For the cost of a single frothy beverage, you will get ad-free shows, membership to our Explorers community, and exclusive travel vouchers delivered direct to your inbox, as well as getting that lovely warm glow for helping to spread this message, our message of love for the outdoors, living life to the full, and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet, which I think, and maybe you do too, is a message worth spreading. The sign-up link is in the show notes. You can look at that right now on your phone, even while you're listening to this. The website, armchair-explorer.com, also has it. Or just head over to patreon.com forward slash armchairexplorerpodcast. The social media is at armchairexplorerpodcast across Instagram and Facebook. Come and hang out. I want to hear about your travels. We're going to get on well. But enough of me rabbiting on. Let's get on with the adventure because we are about to start a 10,000 mile journey following in the wings of the monarch. We are about to go bicycling with butterflies. So every year the monarch migration begins um, in Mexico and it's usually in March the monarchs start heading towards Texas. And when they arrive to Texas, they are tattered. They're faded. They're just barely hanging on. They have survived just an intense amount of 
adventure. And they lay their eggs and then they die. And so those eggs metamorphose and that becomes the first generation of the season. And that first generation flies north, lays eggs, and they die about a month after becoming an adult butterfly. And this will happen over the course of the entire summer. They'll be moving north into their northern range. They'll be laying eggs, mating, dying. And then in the in the fall, all of those monarchs will begin the migration and they'll all fly south, never having been to Mexico before. No way of journeying with their elders to this forest in Mexico. And that's, for me, what's the most incredible aspect is when I was riding my bike in, say, Indiana, and I saw a little caterpillar munching on milkweed, that caterpillar was going to fly to the same trees as their great-great-grandmother. It's just so astounding. It's not like a migration where the parents are going to give the genetic code to fly in a specific route. Because the monarchs that are flying into to Mexico, their mom might have been a, a non-migrant or a barely migrant. Each one has to kind of contain all the information needed to be any part of the migration at any time. There's actually monarchs all over the world, but the Eastern North American migration, that is the only migration of the monarchs that's multi-generational, multinational. And it, it numbers in the millions or billions even, and so it's considered a phenomenon and it's just extraordinary. The migration of the monarch butterflies is one of the most remarkable journeys in the animal kingdom. Every spring, tens of millions of monarchs travel from their winter hibernation grounds in the transvolcanic mountains of Mexico, across the United States and into Canada. It's a journey of between 2,000 and 3,000 miles. And for a creature that weighs half a gram and measures just about four inches, that's a preposterous distance. The comparative length trip for a 150-pound human would be more than 300 million miles or roughly 700 round trips to the moon. But even more baffling is the fact that the butterfly that departs from Mexico will die before returning home, and so will its offspring. It will be left to the fourth generation, the great-great-granddaughter of that original butterfly, to begin the journey anew next spring. How millions of monarchs find their way across a continent to the same specific 12 mountains every year, having never been there before and with no guide, is still one of the great mysteries of the natural world. That is the journey that Sarah is about to take, following the path of the monarchs to Canada and back again. She flew to Mexico with a raggedy old bike cobbled together with used parts. Her panniers were recycled buckets and waited for the temperature to warm, the sky to fill with color and the migration to begin. I started at the Monarch Biosphere Butterfly Reserve, which is an area in southern central Mexico in the state of Michoacan in Mexico where pretty much every monarch born between the Rocky Mountains and the Atlantic Ocean comes and it's a very small area so they're very concentrated and when it's cold they hang on the branches and the first time I saw them like my mind couldn't really process and I was like wait are those hives what are those but they're butterflies of course and for most of the winter you want them hanging from those branches barely moving or not moving at all and that's actually how they survive is by hanging from those branches it's a bit like hibernation so they maintain a very low activity and they don't burn calories and they can live off their fat reserves all winter yes butterflies that arrive in mexico are fat and (laughs) so i went and visited them a few times when it was cold 
And then because I'd gotten there early before I was planning to leave, I was able to visit them quite often. And there's a moment when the temperature starts to warm up and the sun will land on a cluster of thousands and they'll slowly start to warm up. And then all of a sudden they'll just like explode from the branches and they'll just take to the sky. And it's like my favorite colors at this point are orange on that blue background. I just love it so much. And my, but my favorite, favorite part was you could go there when it was sunny and they're all flying around and you could close your eyes and you could hear what millions of monarchs sound like. And it's so beautiful. And hearing that sound, it just, it made me realize why it's so important for every one of us to talk about monarchs. Because I think, wow, if it had just been one monarch flying through the sky, no one would have noticed or heard. Just like one person talking all the time about monarchs kind of gets ignored. But if there's a million flying around, you hear them. If there's a million of us talking about them, it becomes impossible to ignore. She writes, the sun's warmth began to pour steadily through the branches and the monarchs responded by opening their wings, every scale twinkling with gratitude. In the spotlight of spring, butterflies by their thousands sailed towards the sky as fluttering eruptions of orange. The monarchs crowded the skies, painted poems against the blue and danced with the wind. The song of millions of wings hummed through the tree's needles and I felt the anticipation in their swirling flight. And just like that song of a million wings, she hoped her singular journey, her one voice, would inspire a million others. The journey of the monarchs is getting harder and harder every year. Agriculture and human domestication of the land is reducing their habitat and food sources along the way to barely enough to survive. So she wouldn't just be following them. She'd also be stopping in schools along the way to teach kids about the plight of the monarch, as well as finding out about the people who are fighting to protect them and how we can help too. It would be a long journey. At the start, she was staring down those 10,000 miles in nine months of hard pedaling. But if these tiny insects could do it against all the odds, then so could she. If I could bike one mile, she writes, then I could bike 10. And if I could bike 10 miles, then I could do 10,000. One turn of the wheel at a time. I left Mexico, I left the Monarchs, and I was feeling very good. And then I got onto a section of road I'd never been to before. And at literally the very first intersection, I went the wrong way. (laughs) And thus began my trip north through Mexico. I really loved it. I loved the challenges. I loved the sense of adventure. I didn't have a smartphone. My map was unreliable. So many dirt roads so many wrong turns, but that just makes you feel like you're on an adventure. And so you wake up in the morning and you don't know where you're going to camp. You don't know who you're going to meet, but you know something's going to happen. And it was later on the, in the trip and I arrived to this dead end that was just like a road that fizzled out into an open field with like these grazing cows and goats. And like just a little part of me was like, maybe this is the right way. (laughs) I didn't want it to be the wrong way, but of course I found a woman at her house. The nice thing about traveling in Mexico is there's almost always someone you can ask for help. And she looked at me like, no, this is not a road. This is some grass. This is a grazing field. So of course I had to turn around and just climb up this terribly annoying hill. And then that just led into the desert. It led just to the most jarring roads ever. But 
I'll never forget it. And if I had taken the easy way, I, I would probably have not much to say. If I had taken the easy way, I probably wouldn't have much to say. I love that. The wrong turns always make the best stories after all. It is thought the monarchs used the mountains as their guide north, but where they could fly above, she would struggle below, pedaling through steep passes and stifling heat, camping in fields and small towns, relying on the kindness of strangers to help her along the way. Tacos, a bed, a shower, conversation, even ice cream once or twice. 18 days and a thousand miles later, she crossed the border into Texas. As I made my way north through Mexico, I didn't a whole lot of monarchs and I was a little bit like, oh boy, <laughs> if I only see like five monarchs on this trip, it's going to be a little embarrassing. But by the time the monarchs get to Texas, they spread out. And what was really great about that was in Mexico, I was always a little concerned about finding the route. But by Texas, as long as I was in Texas in April, then any road basically became the route of the monarch, which was another great reason to be a cyclist following them is, is I could pick any road. And so I would pick based on, oh, there's a state park, or a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend invited me to stay at their house. So I kind of pieced my route together that way. And as far as going from Mexico to Texas, it's funny because there's not much difference, right? It's just a wall or a river in that case. And I think that's a, a great lesson the monarchs teach us, right? The monarch is not Mexican or United States or Canadian. The monarch is North American. And it's a North American species, and we need North American solutions, and we need to work together. There are no borders from a thousand feet up, just an imperceptible shift from the stifling interior of Mexico to the barren badlands of Texas on the other side of the Rio Grande. It is here in late April and early May that the first generation of monarchs' mates lays their eggs and dies. Six weeks or so later, their offspring emerge and continue their parents' journey, drawn north to a place they have never seen and will die before they reach. Flexibility was key for Sarah because she didn't know exactly which path the monarchs would lead her on. All she had was an old, unreliable map and an app which tracked the path of the monarchs before her. But that flexibility also meant she could be spontaneous. I enjoyed Texas way more than I was expecting. The sides of the roads were just filled with wildflowers. I got to stay at a Native American seed farm. It's a farm that grows native plants and collects the seeds so that other people can plant natives. And and I went there and it was a really extraordinary experience. I got to see a lot of monarchs. I got to see milkweed, which is the only food source of the monarch caterpillar, growing in rows. And then, like, right before I got to Native American Seed Farm, I heard about this cave, a huge cave, called Devil's Sinkhole, and I sat at the, near the entrance thinking, man, do I bike for four more hours, or do I wait four hours for dark to see these bats? And I'm really glad I waited. There was millions of these bats that came out, and they're also migrants, and just a whole different life history, and and really spectacular to see. You can smell a difference and you can almost like feel the change because all the bats are kind of corkscrewing or or spiraling down lower and so as they spiral in this cave which it goes like straight down it's a a sinkhole but so as they're spiraling upward they're like bringing that dank cold moist air from the cave up and so you can like kind of feel the bottom of the cave as as they leave 
They fill the sky. It is a true wildlife wonder and definitely worth the stop. One bat, I get it, might be something you prefer to avoid. But three million spiraling out of a cave into a Texas dusk is definitely something to see. At dusk, she writes, I watched the sunset and darken the devil's sinkhole. The world around me began to match the cave's innards just as the bats began to emerge. Like a corkscrew of wings, they swirled upwards. Bat wings buzzed, barking frogs barked. A great horned owl patiently watched his dinner flood the night, while unsuspecting bugs awaited their own fates in the miles beyond. Thousands of bats swirled upward, a vortex that pulled the depth of their cave upward until I could smell the moist earth that collected each day in its hull. Unseen, but not unnoticed. But her favorite moments, the ones she treasured the most, weren't big things. It was the little miracles that we fail to notice, the ones that most of the time just pass us by. I left for my trip not knowing very much about monarchs. And one of the things I didn't really know was like what milkweed even really looked like. <laughs> so I knew what the flowers looked like. They have these really cool like shooting star flowers that are typically in clusters. They're super beautiful plants. So I would be biking along looking for milkweed, kind of stressing out because I'm supposed to know what milkweed looks like. And then I finally saw some flowers. And so I would just wander off into the roadside ditch and I did this so much, and every milkweed I saw for a while, I would do that until finally I found an egg. And though there's so many different ways to learn, right? I probably could have gotten to that same place with guidebooks and with YouTube videos, but there's something so special about just learning as you go and just learning by crawling around and asking questions like, what the heck is that? <laughs> so. I definitely learned as I went, and I'm, st I'm still learning, but it was super fun to, to just learn by experiencing. And of course, in Texas, on the side of the road, one time, I'm like literally laying on the ground looking at these caterpillars, and I see above on the road, the cops show up, and, <laughs> and I stand up, and he's like, he explains that people have been calling in because they had seen that I had crashed. And I'm like, no, I'm, I haven't crashed, but I'm looking at this caterpillar. And he's like, what? <laughs> but I got, I got that a lot. The, I'm going to slowly back away. <laughs> You're fine, sort of, I'm going to leave. <laughs> People are zooming by just every second. And there's this caterpillar, there's this incredible phenomenon happening. And we don't give these critters the time to fully appreciate how amazing it is and fully appreciate that they are neighbors like just feet away from our cars as we zoom by. In the same day, I'd see this tattered, just, just incredibly tattered female monarch. I mean, she had barely any orange left. I'd say 30% of her wings were just gone. So she was obviously a migrant. She had survived the previous fall migration. She survived an entire winter in Mexico. And she had flown the same route that I had by bike which was hard, I can say that for certain. And she'd arrived there, and then about an hour later, I saw the most vibrant orange monarch that was obviously had been from an egg from a female that had laid that egg a month earlier. That tattered monarch had just gone through all of that for that bright orange monarch to be here 
carrying on with me. It was really extraordinary. I crouched by a roadside milkweed, she writes, and contemplated an egg on the underside of one tiny, fresh leaf. Like a period, a full stop containing an entire story, it didn't seem possible. How had a monarch found such a small plant? How could that little speck go from egg to caterpillar to pupa to adult, fly north, lay eggs and die? How could its offspring do the same? And how could its grandchildren or great-grandchildren know to fly back to Mexico in the fall? Those tiny miracles are everywhere. There is literally another world that exists beneath our feet, a universe of those six million species filled with quadrillions of living beings, more than there are stars in the Milky Way. And we've only scratched the surface in our understanding. And in many ways, that's the point of Sarah's book and the biggest lesson from her 10,000-mile journey. We are surrounded by microcosms of mystery and wonder that we just pass by as we zoom through life. But those tiny miracles, that mystery and wonder that she was witnessing crawling around in the dirt and looking up in the sky, became in many ways harder and harder to see because the landscape was changing. As she moved from Texas into the Midwest, passing through Oklahoma, Kansas, and finally Iowa, it was becoming more populated, more farmed. And because of that, Harder and harder for the monarch to survive. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I had learned to see the milkweed. I had learned to see the monarchs pretty well from my bike. And what I saw scared me and what I saw made me angry because there wasn't places for monarchs to call home. There was lots and lots of green grass. So many people on riding mowers living in the prairie, mowing acres and acres of land that belongs to the monarchs. And I passed acres and acres of corn. And the story of monarchs and corn is interesting because corn and monarchs actually used to get along very well. So when the plow came along with Western colonization, the plow destroyed the prairie, but that invited lots of milkweed. And so what would happen is the farmers would plant corn and the milkweed would thrive as well. And so milkweed did really, really well because the farmers weren't spraying the corn to kill the milkweed. But then in the 90s, when GMO became widespread, what happened that all of a sudden the farmers could plant GMO-resistant corn. And then as soon as the corn came up, 
they could spray and kill the milkweed and the corn would be resistant, the corn would survive. And so all of a sudden we created this acres and acres, I mean millions of acres of land that the only thing that could survive was corn. So in a decade, we erased so much of the monarch's home. And I saw that every day and I just got angry and I got sad. She writes, if I could have articulated that feeling of being witness to such an awe-inspiring process, then I would have had a better answer to the question often asked during my journey. Why should we save the monarchs? It was a troublesome question to me, one that made humanity seem doomed each time I heard it. To my mind, the answer was so obvious that words couldn't answer it. We must save the monarchs because the monarchs are. Climate change, deforestation, and big agriculture are changing the landscape and decimating monarch populations. Confronted with such enormous problems that require such complex solutions, it can seem insurmountable and overwhelming. But there is hope, because one of the biggest problems is something we can all fix. Manicured lawns. I mean, they might as well be parking lots. And they're just so disappointing. I just see green grass and I'm just so disappointed because there's so much potential. Native plants are so beautiful and we need native plants to protect our, our water, to sequester carbon, to prevent erosion. Like we need these plants and we need the animals that also are integrated into these systems. And so when I see that we are making choices that are based on like what our neighbors think, our human neighbors think, it's like just so disappointing. And I love that there are people rethinking this and that there is a paradigm shift and that we are realizing that this is not okay. And so I'd get really, really angry and then I'd stay at someone's house and their yard would be covered in native plants. And I'd think, okay. Like, I'm not alone. I might feel alone on the side of the road, but I'm not alone. And this person is being an example for this neighborhood or this street or the city or, or whatever it is to rethink how we use our land and how we are caretakers of this earth. I love when there's gardens, a native gardens at schools because kids deserve to experience wild land. They deserve to have monarchs visit them. They deserve to learn outside and like observe real life happening and be scientists and curious and all the things that come with playing outside. So like in, in Omaha, I visited a school and it was in the middle of the suburbs and there was some milkweeds and we were like, we kind of like unleashed everybody and we were all just like exploring and there was like, oh, I found milkweed or oh, I found an egg. And then like this monarch adult flew over our heads and like we all just erupted in cheers like it was they were we were all just so excited and that monarch would not have been there without those plants and those kids taking care of that garden and it was such a, a beautiful moment of connection where this monarch that had beat all the odds was going to continue to beat all the odds by by finding these milkweed in this yard and wow it's just so special and i i just would love to see every kid have access to a garden that they can explore and, and fall in love with the natural world. I see so much potential and it just takes people being brave and it takes people re-examining their relationship with their yards and maybe start small, start in a corner, plant a few natives, explore that, like have fun, have an adventure right there where you invite all these creatures to visit you and then just expand every year and watch it spread.
It's interesting, isn't it? You go to a typical house with a back garden or a front lawn and it's all neatly trimmed and prim and proper. And that's what we think looks pretty. Everything ordered and in control. But that's kind of crazy, isn't it? Why would we not have wild nature around our homes? I mean, what is so great about a mowed lawn? Not least because you've got to mow it. Jay Griffiths, the nature writer who we had on the show, said it best. Nature is neutered, she writes. The grass is clean, a lawn laundry that wipes away the mud, the insect, the bramble, nettle and thistle, an easy wipe lawn where nothing of life, dirty and glorious remains. But a paradigm shift is happening slowly, but it's there. People are noticing. And because of that, despite Sarah's anger, she found hope too. Because one butterfly on its own may be hard to see. But millions of monarchs taking flight, like millions of voices calling out, is impossible to ignore. From the Midwest, Sarah followed the monarchs north through Minnesota and finally into Canada and into their summer breeding grounds. Those that arrived are now the great-grandchildren of the butterflies that left Mexico months ago, their long journey finally complete. At least for a while, because as the summer heat dwindles into autumn chill, a super butterfly is born, a butterfly completely different from the generations that came before. Their muscles are more efficient, their metabolic rate changes, they begin to store fat and lose the ability to mate. These are the migratory generation, the superheroes of the butterfly world. They live eight times longer than their parents or their offspring and travel 10 times as far. The sole purpose of their existence is to reach the hibernation grounds in Mexico, survive the winter, and then mate so their offspring can complete the cycle. Typically what happens is the prevailing winds out of the west kind of push the migrants east. And I got it in my head to go all the way to the east coast. It was nice. I liked swimming in the ocean. It was a lot of miles. I had never been to New York City before, so that was a fun highlight. I did chase a monarch through Manhattan. I could not believe I saw this monarch, and I have pictures for proof, and I like to talk about this particular monarch because if monarchs could call New York City home, then they could call anywhere home. And how it's so democratic, it's so wonderful that you can be a farmer in Texas, a school kid in Omaha, or a city dweller in in New York, and you all can help the monarch. And in fact, if one of those three doesn't help, then the others will see less monarchs. That's just, it's so beautiful. And I, the monarchs just connect us in all these really wonderful ways. Yes, that's right. There was a monarch butterfly in Manhattan. But that's the point, because if a monarch can survive in the Big Apple, where we've not just neutered nature, we've paved it in concrete, then it's proof that each one of us can make a difference. We're not going to create an amazing, completely wild preserve on Long Island. That's not going to happen. But what we can do is we can utilize every single backyard, every single public land, every single median. There is so much land there that can become space for wild animals. And if we give that land back to them, well, that's going to be great, not just for the migrating monarchs, but for the migrating birds, for the migrating bats, for everybody. And it's worth doing that. It's worth doing everything we can to preserve this wonder because this is where it gets interesting. 
Sarah actually kind of jumped around here. She headed back inland for a while, back into Canada for a second time, back to Minnesota in the Midwest, giving talks, meeting kids, waiting for the end of summer when the super migratory generation of monarchs would head south to complete the cycle, back to the precise mountains where their distant relatives had begun their journey those many months ago. But no one quite knows how they do that. There's a lot of really incredible little notes about the monarch and the migration. And one is, of course, that monarchs in New York have to travel at a different angle than monarchs in Minnesota. They have to go to the same place. So it can't just be like, oh, go south, right? Because it varies where they are. Another interesting thing is that there's different colonies in Mexico or in the, in the area where they overwinter. There's three big ones that are open to the public. And what's interesting is that it's the same ratio of monarchs going to those three colonies, whether they were tagged in New York or in Minnesota. So it's not like all the monarchs in New York are flying to a specific spot and all the monarchs in Minnesota are flying to a different and they're using different cues. There's something that's kind of uniting them and allowing them to kind of travel from wherever. And a big part of that navigation is the sun. The monarchs use the sun to navigate and there's a moment where the the angle of the sun is dictating the beginning of the migration and the end of the migration. And it's about a month long and the monarchs that do bust are the ones that leave for the migration in that window. And then what I find really fascinating is if the sun is covered by clouds, then the monarchs then switch and they start queuing into what's called UV polarization. And basically as the UV light goes through the atmosphere, it it bounces all over from the, the gases in the atmosphere and creates these patterns. And the monarchs can actually cue in on even just one little bit of blue sky in a primarily cloudy day and use the pattern of polarization in that one spot to know where the sun would be and to continue their journey. And then if it's completely cloudy, what it seems like is they switch to the electromagnetic field, the, the angle of that electromagnetic field varies depending on where you are, and so they'll cue into that. And I love just knowing that this, this insect is way better at navigating than I ever will be. But that only solves one mystery. At a crucial point in their journey, they turn due east to reach their overwintering grounds. That means they must somehow know where to go and when to turn, even though they've never been there before. And the monarchs begin from multiple locations too and are able to adjust their route as required. So they're not just following a compass heading, they're actively navigating a route as they go. A route that will take them directly to the tree their great-great-grandparents had hibernated in, even though they've never been there before. No one has a conclusive answer to how this is done, but it's thought that it is some type of genetic memory, a kind of inherited GPS-like software with a pre-programmed destination. I think that's pretty amazing. More than 6,000 miles under her belt, she followed the kaleidoscope. That's actually what a group of butterflies is called, by the way, a kaleidoscope. How cool is that? She followed them south for 4,000 more miles through the cornfields and manicured lands of the Midwest, through the suburbs and badlands of Texas, long straight roads shimmering endlessly on the horizon. Strangers, monarch watchers as they're known, started to hear of her journey and welcomed her into their homes along the way. Schools called up for talks to their kids for inspiration to crawl into the dirt. 
Past the border, the mountains of Mexico loomed again, hard days pedaling on tired legs and near broken wings, until finally the end was in sight. The last hill was by far the hardest leg five miles of the entire trip because it is just straight up a mountain and it's cobblestone and it was like there's houses for like the first half mile and I just like, I put everything I had into not walking. <laughs> and as soon as there weren't people all, you know, looking at me, like I was able to just walk when I had to. I'm, I'm not that proud. I'll walk my bike sometimes. But um, I arrived about probably about a month behind the main migration. But while I was going south through Mexico, I did see several monarchs a day and I just felt like we were cheering each other on. I'd see them and I'd be like, okay, yeah, we're there, we're going. And I'd cheer them on because they were, they were a straggler. But finally I got to the hill and then it's kind of coasting and it felt like coming home and it's like a, a weird feeling to be done with something and it's kind of a loss, right? Because all of a sudden you don't have the satisfaction of just your day being bike 60 miles, find camp, find food, you know, talk about monarchs. Those goals are gone. And so you can kind of feel a little lost, but luckily I had plans to hang out and keep learning about monarchs. And by then I'd committed to writing a book. And so I, you know, the next horizon was before me. So I was able to just enjoy it. And I walked up to the monarchs and just like was amazed that they'd that they did this and really grateful that they've invited me along and I will ever be forever grateful for them and not just for the migration but all the connections that they have given me all the opportunities they've given me when I started writing a book a couple weeks later after finishing I was not a writer but I just kept thinking about the monarchs and I just kept pecking out the the words on the computer and yeah, I, I mean, I honestly consider the Monarchs my writing teachers in a lot of ways, as well as my teachers for, gosh, so many things. And they taught her well. 10,200 miles down, one mile to go, she writes. The Monarch bobbed out of sight. She would easily beat me to her overwintering grounds. Instinct would pull her to the trees her great-grandparents had settled in the winter before. She was returning home, even though she'd never been there before. I was returning too. One mile shy of connecting the start with the end, spring with full, descendants with their ancestors, the first page with the last. By then, however, I knew that my trip would never really end. Even in a mile, when my bike ride was done, the monarchs would forever flutter in my heart. I spent nearly nine months following a monarch. And one of the things that I kept thinking about every single mile, especially the miles where I'd stop on the side of the road, was look and look was like, you could write a book about every single species. There's a story waiting to be uncovered about every animal, every plant out there. And there's just an endless amount of information to know. And they're all important. They all have a place. I think one of the best lessons that the monarch teaches us is to really slow down and, and look so first, maybe you're attracted to how beautiful and orange and bright they are, but then you start to want to look for the caterpillars and the eggs, and that really forces you to go slower. It really forces you to get out of your car, to get in the dirt, to crawl around quite literally sometimes. And while you're looking for those species, you start to notice all the other animals, and you might not know their names. And, and to me, often that's not as important as just noticing them and recognizing that they have a place in there. And I, I often call them secrets, and 
I just think it's so important to explore our yards, explore our roadsides, explore our local public lands and discover those secrets. It's one of the most remarkable journeys in the animal kingdom, but it's getting harder each year. Where once a billion butterflies took to the skies, now just a fraction of those numbers have survived. For a creature that is used to hard journeys, the longest road may be just ahead. But there is hope, and it starts with something very simple. It starts with us recognizing the small miracles that pass us by, for they are no less remarkable for their size. In fact, maybe they're more so, for these are our hidden wonders, the secret universe beneath our feet and floating above us in the sky. And the more we notice their world, the more amazing and beautiful our world becomes. We are surrounded by microcosms of mystery and wonder. Look up, and you might just catch one fluttering by. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for letting us join you on this inspired adventure. Her book is called Bicycling with Butterflies. It's a great read and an awesome idea for an adventure. I've really enjoyed checking it out. I've linked to it in the show notes, the episode page of the website, or just search it up wherever you get your books. You can also connect with her at beyondabook.org or she's at at beyondabook on Facebook, which is an organization she founded to foster lifelong learners, boundary pushers, explorers, and stewards. Finally, if this episode inspires you to find out more about the monarch butterfly migration, why it's under threat, and what you can do to help, head to monarchwatch.org or monarchjointventure.org. Both are great websites to check out. So if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy this show and you think it's worth the cost of half a pint, one pint a month, then please consider showing your support by becoming a patron of the show. The link is in the show notes. Check it out right now on your phone, the website armchair-explorer.com or just head over to patreon.com armchair explorer podcast. The sponsorship covers the cost of the production, but not my time. And if you believe in the same values that we promote on the show, love for the outdoors, living life to the full, and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet of ours, then give what you can and help spread that message to other people that might need it too. Thank you for whatever you can do. It really does mean the world to me. Big shout out to, to Lizzie Goldsmith, who did the sound editing and the sound design on this episode. I think she's absolutely killing it. I hope you enjoyed her work, and I really appreciate everything that she's putting into this. She's an awesome writer and podcast producer in her own right, and you can check out more of her work at lizziegoldsmith.com. So that's about it, folks. Thank you for listening. Get those hands in the dirt, grow those wild gardens, and look deeply into that hidden world beneath our feet. Because the more we look for wonder, big and small, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.